0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. Recent satellite images reveal that China has built mock-ups of U.S. carriers and other warships. The mock-ups show China's efforts to build up anti-carrier capabilities, the U.S. Naval Institute says that, th- that China is using these models for missile target practice. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro says that the Navy needs annual budget increases of up to 5 percent over inflation. Del Toro says that this annual budget increase is necessary for the Navy to, b- to meet its shipbuilding goals and to counter threats from China. His statement comes after an annual report from the Pentagon that estimates China could have over 1,000 nuclear warheads by 2030. The White House is improving benefit eligibility for veterans in honor of the holiday this week. The Biden administration plans to ensure veterans have timely access to services and benefits and will address health effects as a result of service-related exposures. A recent press release from the White House says that these benefits are essential to both national security and maintaining U.S. military power. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC, program is meant to improve the network security of defense contractors, but following an internal review, the Pentagon is making changes and rolling out version 2.0. Ron Marks is a former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate majority leaders. Currently, he's president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies. Ron, nice to see you again.
2: Thank you. Delighted to be here. So what was wrong with the first version of this? I remember watching a movie called Amadeus one time, and it was about Mozart, and I remember the king walking up to him at one point and saying that the song had too many notes, (laughs) and I think that's what happened, is that there were so many moving parts to that that were so large and so, I'm going to use the word intrusive, but involving so many companies, so much training, so many individuals who were getting, not contrary orders, but other orders from other parts of the government. Uh, that it was confusing. So I think a good, I guess, strategic retreat may be the best way of saying it at this point, but bringing it back, thinking about where you want to go, trying to match it off with other parts of the government. Energy Department, for instance, also has something like this and 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 try to think about the smaller companies too and i and i think there are a lot of complaints so i think a very smart to pull back
1: H- has this thing been problematic from the start i mean are you surprised that there's been this strategic uh, pullback
2: i'm trying not to smile uh the answer is unfortunately yes you know it, it, it was the best of intentions and and you know how the road to hell is paved with those and i think what happened was people were so concerned over internal threat they were so concerned over the size of the military industrial base. I mean, let's face it, defense industrial base is huge. It's hundreds of thousands of companies. The potential leakage in there has been strong. The Chinese have been exploiting that, and not just big companies, but medium-sized and small companies. So I thought, and Katie Arrington, these people going ahead in terms of that was not a good Was a good idea it was it was essentially the rollout i think in a lot of ways you, you were training in, you were getting companies first who were going to train inspectors then the inspectors were going to go out and inspect and it wasn't clear in terms of their inspection for instance how they would p- apply the five levels that they were talking about uh, in terms of valuation it, it had a lot of creaking parts to it and what you started to hear fairly quickly in fact were companies starting to say well wait a minute what are we doing here? Where, where are we going? And then, of course, a lot of people, and this is something DOD couldn't control, a lot of people were simply out there promoting themselves as, we don't, you know, we're now capable of making these judgments. Here we are, don't forget us. Mm-hmm. And I think that just made everything awkward. And you could hear the rumbling, the roaring just underneath in the industry saying, eh, "This is this is not good.
1: All right. So outline for us the major changes then that you think we'll see here.
2: Well, I think you, you've already seen they're going to pull back in terms of number levels. I think they're going to do three levels at this point. I don't know whether they're going to, they're they have not gotten rid of the training group. Uh, they are certainly at this point uh, looking at what kind of training that is, the kind of people it should be going forward. I think they've sent the word to the companies at this point, or certainly they've, they've said it in the press, that look, you know, we're going to be looking at a smaller group of firms. Uh, those are involved with more sensitive material, so it's not just everybody who's got a government a defense contract, but in fact a much narrower group. They're going to try for smaller companies, I think, to take into some consideration a little bit of self, self-criticism, self criticism, self and you know self review for the first you know first time around, and get away with that. So it's it's really much narrower at this point, it's much more focused, and again from the standpoint of smaller companies, and and I've got to tell you, I advise enough of them at this point. The cost of this thing beforehand, nobody knew, which frightened them because it's coming off their bottom line. So I think this is a much easier, wiser approach. I can tell that we're beginning to slip it about a year at this point. Uh, and certainly in terms of the contracts, they're not going to apply to the contracts, I think, until 25. So
1: you like these changes. Are they enough, though? Is this going to accomplish what it needs to accomplish, which is keeping these networks secure?
2: You know, I don't think it will when it's all said and done. I would rather see them coordinate with, you know, Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. I think DCSA at this point has got a fairly robust program in terms of internal threat. I understand why they wanted to, to go ahead with this kind of review. But I still think when it's all said and done, by setting standards uh, and applying those standards across the board within DOD, not confusing people necessarily with several different groups coming at them, uh, I think that's, that's fairer to the companies, I think. But we'll see, you know, again, it's about a year off, and then we'll see if they're going to modify. In the meantime, there are corporate comments coming yet, so that's, that's still yet to change the game.
1: So, Ron, obviously there's a lot going on with cybersecurity across the government and there's a lot of different standards and guidelines coming out. Is there coordination going on so that companies know what to do and what's going to be required of them?
2: I, I sense that you're starting to see some of it. And I think one of the reasons, if I, to, if I had to look at the atmospherics of this, that you saw the pullback on CMMC is, in fact, just that, which is you're now getting people who are beginning to look around and say, well, wait a minute. And that's just a general atmosphere. You know I have endless faith in in Chris Inglis and the idea of a national cyber director, and one of the points of that position, in fact, was something like this, which is, let's reexamine what we're doing, what we're asking for from these companies, because they're getting hit up. Not only if they have other business in the private sector, they've got CISA, they've got DOD, uh, they've got parts of DOD, they've also got the Security Exchange Commission now. Uh, Justice Department, uh, you know, all, all these different parts of the government are, are poking at them, and they're and you know they they want to be responsible. I think for the most part, I don't see people for the most part not wanting to do that. But the question is, who's in charge here, and what do you want? What do you want us to do? And if Chris can deliver that message and you know get something across the board that makes sense and he seems to have the budget and the program i was listening to your interview in fact and i thought to myself okay you got budget you got program which in this little poker game that we play around town means you get to talk it means you get to to some extent make things stick so we may not see it this year but again i I was looking at that cmmc they're going to kick it off a year and i think that gives him a chance to get some budget and people in there to begin that process of coordination
1: Okay. Well, we've got a year to see what what happens. Ron, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you very much. Up next, is the U.S. military's force structure staring into an abyss? Still ahead on Government Matters, the latest on the defense budget and strategy. We'll be right back. Active duty forces have decreased slightly for FY 2022, but long-term force structure is still undetermined. Retired Marine Colonel Mark Kansian is a senior advisor in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mark, welcome.
0: Well, thanks for having me on the show.
1: What is force structure and how is it determined? Sure. The force
0: Force structure is the size and composition of military forces and these are things like army brigades navy ships air force squadrons it's determined during the pentagon's periodic defense reviews one of which is going on now for the Biden administration
1: you say that quote for strategic and budgetary reasons force structure is staring into the abyss what do you mean by that
0: many strategists would cut force structure in order to save money to invest in Uh, advanced technologies and expensive technologies to confront China. Uh, You see some of that in the FY 2022 budget where the Navy retires 10 ships early and the Air Force proposes retiring 200 aircraft. I think we'll see more of that in the next defense strategy and the FY 2023 budget which will come out uh, in February. I think you're gonna see very deep cuts in force structure
1: but i mean you mentioned the reliance on advanced technology so we're talking about robotics um, ai unmanned vehicles doesn't that allow the defense department to reduce the number of forces i mean you don't need as many people
0: you don't need as many people for a uh, conflict with china for example Uh, although i would point out that even unmanned systems require a lot of people they just aren't on the battlefield very often they're back in the united states or in some remote location the problem is the rest of the world, Uh, Russia, Iran, North Korea, are still showing um, malign intent in confronting the United States. Further, the United States has forces deployed all around the world for humanitarian assistance, for crisis response, uh, and to support partners and allies. Those demands have not gone down despite the efforts of many administrations. So the United States can't ignore those uh, demands on its forces in order to focus exclusively on China.
1: So what's what are the challenges then? What's the problem with the administration's proposed approach?
0: The problem is that if you make deep cuts to force structure, you're going to leave some of these uh, other uh, commitments uncovered and create vulnerabilities uh, so that uh, if fully implemented, I think you're going to see a lot of pushback from allies and partners this is going to be a particular problem for the biden administration which has argued that the united states is back it's told it's uh, our allies and partners that we will uh, be with them that we will not be pulling away the way uh, the trump administration had
1: so then what about the the reliance on reserve forces because i believe they're (laughs) stretched already thin
0: well they are the united states has increasingly depended on reserve forces since the early 1970s with the end of the draft and the announcement of what was called the total force policy. The United States has made major investments in training and equipping its reserve forces, and as a result has some of the best reserve forces uh, in the world. Those are able to offset uh, some commitments. Uh, Reserve forces, of course, are less expensive, but they're also less ready. Many strategists want to have forces that are rapidly deployable, They can respond quickly to crises and prevent what they call fait accompli. So there's a strategic debate going on inside the Pentagon. Should we rely more on reserve forces, which are less expensive, or should we rely less because they are less ready?
1: So is the solution here, when there's a gap between military resources and strategy and foreign policy, to scale back expectations, to change that strategy?
0: In theory, that's what you should do. The problem is, it's very hard to dial back strategy. It's very hard to go, for example, to our European allies and say, "We're going to scale back our exercises in Europe. We're going to turn more of NATO's commitments over to you, Europeans." Uh, when we've tried that in the past, of course, you know, there's been a lot of uh, pushback. So uh, this resources strategy gap opens up, and you've seen that in the Congress, for example, that. Uh, there's been a push to increase uh, funding for defense. The Biden administration and the Trump administration before it had proposed level funding. Three of the four congressional committees have proposed increases of about $24 billion to try to close that gap.
1: Is this challenge, Mark, across all the services or is one worse off than the others?
0: All the services face these challenges. They're facing them differently, however. You look at the army, for example, Uh, Many strategists would cut the size of the army to invest money in uh, air and uh, naval capabilities. The army preserved its force structure in the FY22 uh, budget. And it did this by cutting readiness and modernization. It's making a strong argument around town about its relevance to uh, modern conflicts, uh, particularly in China. Its officials have blanketed the think tanks, for uh, example. The Navy's in a different position uh, there's a bipartisan consensus to expand the size of the Navy. The challenge with the Navy has been that uh, the administration is retiring ships as fast as new construction arrives, so it's hard to uh, expand the size of the Navy uh, in those circumstances. Its long term plans include smaller ships and many uh, unmanned vessels, uh, consistent with the recommendations of many strategists, including uh, those in the Trump administration.
1: All right, well, Mark, we'll watch uh, how this develops. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me on the show.
1: You can find a link to Mark's work at govmatters.tv resources. Coming next, winter is here for Afghanistan. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a look at the intersection of U.S. sanctions and relief efforts. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The U.S. has provided $474 million in aid to Afghanistan in 2021, but U.S. sanctions could worsen the humanitarian situation and increase food insecurity. The Taliban takeover of Afghanistan has led to challenges for U.S. foreign policy, sanction strategy and humanitarian aid. Jason Bartlett is a research assistant for the Energy Economics and Security Program at the Center for New american Security. Jason, welcome to the program. Thank
3: you very much for having me.
1: Give us a breakdown of the current sanctions on Afghanistan.
3: So since about nine, uh, 1999, uh, the US has imposed a steady series of economic sanctions against Taliban-related targets, and that significantly increased following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. There are about set, um, over 150 sanctions uh, that are targeting the Taliban, and about 70% of those um, are related to counterterrorism financing authorities.
1: So now that winter is setting in, how bad is the humanitarian situation?
3: So the UN has been issuing several reports on the increasing levels of food insecurity within Afghanistan uh, throughout the past several years which has been mainly caused due to uh, protracted crisis as well as drought in the region. And following the fall of Kabul, this is expected to increase exponentially because the Afghan people have not been able to access finances as well as um, during the, the control of Kabul by the Taliban, it's very difficult for them to have access to the US financial system because of this. And that has led to serious um, over issues with US uh, financial institutions as well as foreign banks that are fearful of being targeted by U.S. sanctions for facilitating transactions related to
1: Afghanistan. But Jason, uh, let's back up a little bit and explain exactly how these U.S. sanctions unintentionally lead to food insecurity among the population. How does one particular family, let's say, living in Kabul, not get access to food because of U.S. sanctions?
3: So one of the reasons for that is the funding. So Afghanistan historically has had very high levels of food insecurity as well as poverty and certain economic sanctions that are targeting the financial sector of afghanistan can restrict afghan citizens from having access to transactions and financial funds used to buy food or to even receive humanitarian aid if these aid organizations aren't able to operate within the country and move around and pay for things such as food water uh, even transportation so because of uh, these sanctions that are imposed it can create a lot of difficulties for families to withdraw funds from banks, especially if those banks are controlled by the Taliban, which means that they can, be san- they can be targeted by U.S. sanctions, as well as even remittances from Afghan people living outside of the country that might have difficulty having banks accept their financial transactions to their families still in Afghanistan to purchase food and other uh, relief-related uh, products.
1: So then what are the unique challenges to creating an effective sanctions program against Afghanistan?
3: One of the largest overarching issues right now is that the US government hasn't created a formal definition of the Taliban. And this is very important because if there isn't a formal definition of the Taliban, it's very difficult for the US government, financial institutions, as well as foreign banks, to really ascertain whether or not it's legally permissible for them to accept transactions or to process these financial transactions that are going into afghanistan uh, this hasn't been an issue until recently because prior to the fall of kabul Ta- the taliban was a shadow government within afghanistan it didn't control the capital but now that it does there are these new compliance issues we're seeing over compliance from banks that are worried that they might be sanctioned so they're just deciding not to accept or facilitate any of these uh, financial transactions, which right now is very unique because we haven't seen the Taliban having this level of political and economic control in Afghanistan before.
1: So we don't, at this point, we can't even define who is Taliban and who is not. Um, So, I mean, what has the Treasury Department done to clarify the sanction strategy um, so that this humanitarian situation can be alleviated?
3: So the treasury has issued two general licenses related to humanitarian aid in afghanistan one publicly and one privately and these are very important because these tend to offer more guidance as well as a deeper explanation of the certain protocols and guidelines around humanitarian aid and financial transactions as well as any other type of activity in afghanistan um, and the, the u.s government has continued to try to issue faqs which tried to offer more of a deep explanation on what exactly the boundaries and guidelines are, but it's still uncertain whether or not this will be enough, especially given the pending harsh winter season that is estimated to even exacerbate uh, the current financial and um, humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. So
1: the U.S. has contributed another $144 million in humanitarian aid uh, to Afghanistan just last month. What does that provide and is it enough?
3: So the White House has issued a statement saying that the additional um, amount that you just specified is going to independent humanitarian aid organizations um, and other groups that are being tasked to provide winterization assistance, food, medicine, um, uh, other aids for relief, sanitation, water, and basically everything to make sure that Afghanistan people have their personal human security. It is still uncertain whether or not that'll be enough uh, one of the reasons is the, the harsh pending winter, growing levels of food insecurity and also the overcompliance issue. Even if these organizations are. Receiving this money, it's very difficult whether or not um, to ascertain that they'll be able to purchase these goods and be able to give these goods to the people who actually need it, the Afghan people.
1: All right. Well, Jason, we of course, we wish them the best. But thank you so much for being on the program. Thank
3: you very much for having me.
1: You can find a link to Jason's work at govmatters.tv resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to video segments.